0: Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender.
1: Welcome to the show, everyone. Hope you're having a great day. You know I have to start every show with that special shout-out to Yoshiko Dart, another great Disability leader in this country. Hello, Yoshiko. And to the 17 countries that listen to this show, thank you so much. I know you've heard me saying this for two years now, but I've got to tell you, Ireland, you rock. I mean it. I just can't believe the listening audience we have there, which Chris Griffin, I bet you like hearing me say that, Uh, but thank you so much, and you know, keep fighting the fight uh, that you are again, and all the other countries, I really mean it, thank you all, remember, you're helping me on an international basis, spread the word about Quality of Life for People with Disabilities, and you're going to love these two guests today because they are both well-known disability rights leaders in this country where when you say their name, everyone knows who they are. I am so honored to have them with me, Chris Griffin and Ari Naiman, what an honor to have you. Um, Welcome, both of you.
0: Thanks, Joyce. Pleasure to be on the show.
1: Okay, well, Chris, uh, Chris, I'm going to start with you. Um, how about if you let everyone know and give them an update on what you're doing now?
2: Well, I think you Well, I know you and Ari know this and a few others, but for everybody else, I wanted to let you know that I retired uh, from the Disability Law Center about a year and a few months ago, Little over a year and um, I retired uh, mainly because my husband is Alzheimer's and it was time to actually stay home and hang out with him and um, enjoy uh, some good time that we have uh, in our relationship. And in addition to that, I was honored last year to do the search for the new executive director of the American Association of People with Disabilities, I think we can now say, because it's public, that Maria Town uh, will be the next executive director. But more importantly, as a result of that search, more importantly for me, as a result of that search, um, Joyce asked me to come on board with Bender Consulting, as uh, an executive search consultant, and we just got a contract to find the new director for WID, World Institute on Disability, and um, we're now in the process of of searching for that uh, executive director. So if there's anyone out there that wants to apply, please send me your resume and cover letter. Uh, I guess I should say my email, cgriffin at com, and... Uh, I'm sure we're going to find a great person who has international experience and experience with the disability community. But that's that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm focused on.
1: And it is such an honor to have you as part of our team, especially someone of your stature and uh, credibility. And you know, Chris is handling the search. It is she handling it. So once again. If you are interested in the CEO position with World Institute on Disability or if you know of someone, make sure you get in touch with Chris C. Griffin at BenderConsult.com. Okay, now how about you?
2: They can also go on your website um, and see the job posted there. So if that's easier for people, and that gives all the instructions on how to apply and what the job requirements are.
1: Oh, okay, good point. Uh, and that would be BenderConsult.com. Bender, C-O-N-S-U-L-T, dot com. Okay, thanks, Chris, for mentioning that. And Ari, you have some new things going on also. So how about if you give an update on what's going on in your life?
0: Sure, sure. So as you know, Joyce, I'm in the process of writing a book on the last 200 years of disability advocacy history. It's called The Right to Live in This World, and it'll be published by Simon & Schuster in 2021. I firmly believe that as an advocate, we... Really can't understand the disability policy present without reference to disability history and this, this long, long track record of advocacy, um, but also some, some deep wrongs by society against people with disabilities. Um, when, whether we're talking about the tragic legacy of the American eugenics movement, which was responsible for the expansion, uh, in institutionalization in the United States, um, or the legacy of the, um, country's efforts to assist disabled union veterans after the Civil War, so much of what exists now really has its roots in the last two centuries or so. Um, And so my hope is the book will introduce uh, new generation of readers to the uh, history of our movement. Um, I think you're also aware that I work with a variety of different um, disability and civil rights groups, the ACLU, the Partnership to Improve Patient Care, although I'm here in an individual capacity. And this fall, um, my wife and I will be moving to Boston, um, and I'll be, uh, starting a doctoral program in health policy at Harvard University. So it's, uh, it's an exciting, busy time, and, um, uh, glad to be on the show.
1: Wow, that is so exciting. Congratulations. And, Chris, you've yeah. known Ari for quite a while, right? I think it's you. That I you have. I joke and him.
2: say I was, I was Ari's mentor when he was in the AAPD internship program, but I really think he mentored me more than I mentored him. So, um,
0: oh, I don't think yeah, that's, no, that's no, true. No, Ari, you, you, were, you were a man. wonderful mentor, Chris. I'm, I was lucky to have you. I still am.
2: <laughs> oh, that's nice of you to say. I told him, So I'm looking sp- forward to Ari being here in the Boston area in the fall, and I'll get to see him more, so that's great.
1: Yeah, right. That's what I was thinking, right no. in your area. That's so awesome. Uh, well, I wanted to talk to both of you in two different parts, actually, about impending legislation uh, referencing 14C, Chris, First, I thought you could explain 14C to our listeners and how this came to be part of the Fair Wage and Labor Act, because sometimes when I mention 14C, people do not know what I'm talking about, and of course... No, they don't know it
2: exists.
1: Yeah, people on an international basis would not know.
2: I know, this is part of our history, and... um, I'm sure this will be part of Ari's book, but 14C of the, section 14C of the Fair Labor Standards Act was actually passed in 1938 and, and still is going strong in 2019, which is hard to believe. But what it does is it allows public and private employers to get these certificates from the Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division and it it allows them to compensate or pay people with disabilities at rates below the federal minimum wage. And they, they base what the person gets paid on how they measure their productivity. So they would measure what someone without a disability can do. You know, I can put, you know, 20 widgets in a box in, you know, in five minutes. And then they'll measure the person with a disability, um, how many widgets can they put in the box in five minutes. And then their pay is based on productivity. Now, can you imagine if we all get paid based on our productivity every day? Anyway, the problem with this program is it results in a large number of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and people with mental illness any type of psychiatric disability can end up in a program like this too, and a lot of people don 't realize that that's that's um used for folks uh with different disabilities besides just intellectual and developmental disabilities but it it puts a large number of them um automatically after school mostly into these sub-minimum-wage positions and usually in very segregated or separate facilities. Um, We call them sheltered workshops. They might be called something else, but they're basically an enclave of people with disabilities in one place, only, you know, not interacting with the general public and doing, um, you know, work. And it might be, you know, for example, Goodwill Industries, they might be, you know, hanging up clothes that people have donated uh things like that so uh the problem is is that people with disabilities uh are often told that this is the only option for them uh their families may be told that and so th- there's really no one pushing um, pushing people with disabilities to, uh, are offering them opportunities to get into any type of competitive wage uh employment, although those of us in the advocacy world know that most of these people can uh, all of these people you know essentially could be in a a competitive wage position. Um, in doing a variety of different jobs, uh, just they aren't they aren't provided with this opportunity, and so this 14C still exists. It still allows people to pay people with disabilities sub minimum wage, and it's 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 horrible. Um, and I think Ari can talk about the legislation that's pending to to get
0: rid of this. <clears throat>
1: Um, I have a couple of questions first. Why was okay. this originally put in place?
2: You know, it was 1938. So I think it was put in place because people with disabilities really couldn't get jobs. They weren't allowed to, um, uh, you know, people weren't employing people with disabilities back then. Um, think of the time, you know, it was uh, the Depression era. It was, you know, it was, I think, a mechanism for people to hire more people with disabilities. But I think the, the other aspect of it was that, you know, people were going to be, the idea was that people with disabilities would be trained and they would learn how to, you know, develop a skill or do a certain job, and then hopefully they would be hired into a competitive wage job. And maybe that worked for some people, but the reality is it ended up becoming an industry um, where providers were, you know, making money, getting contracts with employers to do work for them, whether it's stuffing envelopes or, you know, like I, I said, hanging up clothes for Goodwill. They got contracts to do this work, and they provided the workers with the, the disabilities and um, and someone was making money, but it wasn't people with disabilities, that's for sure.
1: You know, I don't know why or how it is possible that we still have this today in place because you know, it's, it's like slavery. I just can't believe it. Uh, but Ari, I know your feelings about this are very strong also in opposition to 14C. And I know there is uh, impending legislation, the Transformation to Competitive Employment Act. I I wonder if you could talk about that. But also, what is your answer to people who think ending 14C would end the opportunities for their child with a significant disability to work and gain income and, and have, you know you know, how people will say, oh, but with this, they have dignity, it helps them. Well, let's talk about both things. First, what about this impending legislation?
0: Sure, so there's a lot to unpack there, you know, and I'll just start by saying that Chris is correct. There's very few people with disabilities leave sheltered workshops for integrated employment. The last uh, data that we have on this is only about 5% of people with disabilities in sheltered workshops ever moving to integrated employment. Um, and where it's been researched, we've generally found that folks with comparable disabilities have better outcomes um, in terms of pay, in terms of numbers of hours worked um, if they go straight into integrated employment than if they ever go into a sheltered workshop. So as a form of pre-vocational service, sheltered workshops really are... Failures. Now, when we talk about the Transformation to Competitive Employment Act, which is H.R. 873 in the House and S. 260 in the Senate, so we encourage you to call your members of Congress and get the word out about this important legislation. Um, the Transformation to Competitive Employment Act would do a few things. Uh, first, it would phase out Section 14C, Second, it would provide technical assistance to service providers. Um, And third, it would provide grants to service providers to change their business model. You know, you do have some truly awful actors, uh, as you mentioned, Chris, um, as you mentioned, Joyce, that are um, paying their executives six or seven-figure salaries uh, while their workers are making pennies on the dollar, or pennies an hour. But that's that's not the majority of sheltered workshops. By and large, what we're talking about here Uh, isn't really slavery. It's it's a situation where in the 1970s and 80s, service providers that maybe started with good intentions built these sheltered workshops and then got stuck in an old service model. They didn't move with the times. And so what we're saying is we're going to end 14C, but we're not going to tell all the service providers that are running sheltered workshops, well, you know, just go away, get rid of you, we're getting rid of you, we don't need any of your expertise. Instead, this legislation would provide grant funding and technical assistance to help them change their business model to, instead of running a sheltered workshop where they're paying people less than minimum wage, to uh, operate supported employment services as well, uh, excuse me, to operate supported employment services instead, um, where they help people with disabilities find jobs in the community at or above minimum wage and bring support to them. So it's really it's the same thing that we've seen in the past around deinstitutionalization and community living, rather than saying there's this separate, special place where we're going to put all of the people with disabilities, whether it's to live or to work or to have something to do during the day, we're instead going to be bringing supports to people where they want to be, integrated throughout the broader community. Now, you, you talked about how to respond to folks who have concerns about ending 14C? Uh, And Joyce, I think that's a very important question. So so let me start with a couple of critical things. Um, When we talk about the family members that are critical of ending 14C or closing sheltered workshops, usually the reason for that is because they're looking to sheltered workshops for something other than employment services for their family member. Usually, what they're looking for is a place for their family member with a disability to go during the day and have some form of structured activity, both for their family member's sake and for their own sake. Um, and you know, I think the main thing we have to get across is that when we close sheltered Workshops, We replace them with something better. Supported employment services can help people find jobs in the community, and because those jobs pay at or above minimum wage, folks end up making considerably more money, um, often working fewer hours. So if you were making... A dollar an hour, working 30 hours a week in a sheltered workshop. Um, You know, if you're working five or ten hours a week in a community job, you're still making much more money. And integrated day services provide people with disabilities, even people with very severe disabilities, with support to be out in the community doing the things they want to do. It may be going to the mall, uh, maybe going to the community pool, maybe taking a class, maybe volunteering at Meals on Wheels, any number of other things. But the idea here is that for supported employment, and integrated day services, we can provide people with disabilities of all kinds, of all levels of severity, with access to a meaningful day. For many of them, we can provide them with access to competitive integrated employment. And we can ensure that everyone who leaves a sheltered workshop has access to a better outcome, to a greater degree of integration. And I would say in the majority of cases, um, to more income than they had within the workshop environment.
1: Right. And you know what, Chris? How have they done this in Vermont and a couple other states?
2: Yep. Um, as a matter of fact, Massachusetts is an example of a state that several years ago decided that they were going to end sheltered workshops, and they went through a long transition period and spent significant amounts of money, millions of dollars um, providing uh, funding for these um providers so that they could you know really develop a transition plan and, and help people transition to uh, competitive wage jobs and, and as Ari described, a more meaningful day um, that was structured and they were able to do other things. And I think it has resulted in what Ari described in that people may be working, technically working less hours, but I mean, really were people working before when they were getting paid 50 cents an hour? Not really. So they're doing something more meaningful and getting paid, um, you know, minimum wage, and it might be less hours, but then the day is taken up doing other things, things that hopefully the person wants to do because they've done a, an individual assessment with the individual and they've come up with a plan and, and the person is doing the things that they want to do. Um, you know, whether it's recreation, whether it's you know, something academically, uh, but they've had input and their families have have had input uh into uh what that day might look like. Um, Massachusetts I would say and and I haven't looked at it uh, you know, very recently, but you know, there were there were problems. Um, you know, it didn't happen as as fast as people expected
0: Uh,
2: it um, they kept a sheltered workshop or two in place for people that met this criteria of uh, not being able to place them into um, uh, competitive and integrated settings because of certain behaviors most of them uh, sexual if they were on a, a uh, a sexual uh, predator list of any kind. Uh, they had been arrested for various types of activities. They were, they were still kept segregated. And I know when I was at the Disability Law Center, we were challenging some of the people that were placed there because once you have one one of these workshops or several in place that and you have exceptions, to the rule, then people start finding it easier to put someone there that they 're having a hard time placing, and it isn 't necessarily because they have a criminal history of any kind or a sexual behavior problem, so um, we were challenging that, and i don 't know where that stands as of right now, um, but once you have as i said once you have exceptions, it starts becoming easy to to fill in. Uh, with other people,
1: yes. But Vermont,
2: you know, I think, has done away with them and has been very successful. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. There weren't a lot of states that had actually done it.
1: Yeah, and you know what? When you were talking before, when we were talking about when families say, "You know what will happen? This is this makes my child happy. This is what they want to do." you know whatever regardless of the type of uh disability sometimes i say really did you ever ask them did you ever give them alternatives
2: did you ever say you could also do this you know i used to talk to a commissioner at, at mass rehab who you know a lot of the rehab commissions find it very easy to place people in sheltered workshops and um I remember having this discussion many years ago with the the person who was there at the time, Elma Bartels, and I used to say, Elma, you're spending a fortune assessing the person and then determining that their, their material... Um, to be placed in a in a sheltered workshop and yet you've never shown them other opportunities. Why don't you spend you were spending nine thousand dollars at the time, I remember the amount. And I said, why don't you spend half of that nine thousand dollars showing them other opportunities, whether it's at a grocery store, whether it's at a, a local library, or whether you know, why don't you start showing them what other options are and let them choose? Don't don't assess them and then say that this is the only option because that's what was happening. And the assessment cost $9,000, which also was astounding to me. Um, so I think, I think that as people really sit down and develop an individual plan with someone and show them other options, that people will have an opportunity to choose
1: And a lot of families
2: do know what people like. They do know that, you know, they might know that I like, you know, doing a certain activity or that I've always expressed an interest in, um, you know, doing something athletic, you know, maybe working with a sports team or doing something at the local fire station. Um, There's lots of opportunities out there. You just have to, you know, show the person what the options are. And let
1: them pick. <laughs> I agree with you 100%. Well, I want to move on for a moment and talk about uh, health care. But, you know, I just want to say if you have more questions about that, you can go to the website uh, and look up this Transformation to Competitive Employment Act so that you can keep uh, apprised of what's going on or go to aapd.com. Uh, we try to keep everyone apprised of what's happening. Um healthcare. Ari, this is an area that I know you do a lot of work in. And sometimes people do not realize in the disability community how that is going to impact their life uh, or the disability community at large. For example, commercial insurers and the cost of medication. I wonder if you could Talk about that for a minute and explain to our listeners how that could impact them.
0: Sure. So one of the really concerning trends we've seen over the last several years is that as insurers look for options to deal with the high cost of drugs, um, increasingly the option they're turning to is restricting access for people with disabilities Uh, and people with chronic illness who require costly medication. Uh, And that's deeply concerning. Um, There are a variety of methods that are used to restrict access. Um, Many of you are probably familiar with prior authorization requirements. Uh, A little bit less known, but uh, even more problematic, is uh, step therapy, um, sometimes called fail-first policies uh, under step therapy. An insurer will say, well, we're not going to provide you with the medication that your doctor prescribed until you first try this cheaper medication that we think is roughly equivalent, um, but you have to fail on that medication. You have to show that medication doesn't work for you before will provide you with the medication that's actually been prescribed to you. And, and that's really concerning because for many people with disabilities, that, that process of failure on that first medication can have devastating, sometimes life-threatening results. Um, if you've achieved a degree of stability, um, let say with a psychiatric medication, or um, if you have particularly atypical medication responses to, certain kinds of antibiotics or any number of other things, Um, being forced to take medication that is not what was prescribed to you for reasons of cost can put your life at risk. Uh, And so there's this very concerning trend where insurers and pharmaceutical benefit managers, PBMs, companies like CVS Caremark, uh, Express Scripts and others that are contracted with by insurers to manage par- pharmacy benefits are restricting access to what people with disabilities can get, um, even in the commercial insurance system. Now, one of the other areas that's particularly concerning um, is that uh, There's a push in many circles um, to uh, use something called a quality-adjusted life year, or QALY uh, for short, as a means of determining what drugs uh, will have these restrictions placed on them and what will not. Um, The QALY uh, is a very concerning system that's used in the United Kingdom and parts of Europe Mm -hmm. um, that basically... Measures or purports to measure the percentage of value a year in the life of a disabled person, a year of life for a disabled person has relative to a year in the life of a hypothetical healthy non disabled person. Um, Qualies work by assigning disability weights to particular conditions. So if quadriplegia receives a disability weight of 0.3, that means that under the Quali system, a year in the life of a person with quadriplegia is worth 70% of a year in the life of a non-disabled person. And this becomes very, very concerning because qualities are then used to calculate which drugs are considered cost-effective. And you end up with a situation where drugs that will extend life are undervalued. You can also end up in a situation where because of the complexities of how the quality is calculated, drugs that um, would improve uh, functional skills um, or uh, provide access to higher quality of life are undervalued, Um, and all of this is again being used to justify the placement of restrictions on what uh, people with disabilities and those with chronic illness can have access to. So it's a very, very concerning And there's a need for disability advocates to monitor this space very closely. Just as we've monitored the world of long-term services and supports and home and community-based services, we have to start monitoring the world of pharmaceutical reimbursement and drug policy, both in the context of public insurance, Medicaid and Medicare, but also in the context of commercial insurance, where this is becoming more and more common.
1: So if I may ask, but but before I ask the question, I wanted to make a comment. When you were talking about the advising to change drugs uh, or try this drug first before we give you this drug, that has had a terrible impact on people with epilepsy because mm-hmm. even a small variance can lead to seizures. So when you were talking about different groups, that is one group that it is impacting when that happens. Uh, the next thing I wanted to mention is who would do these qualifications? Who would that be? Who would determine you have epilepsy, but, you know, it's not as serious as this person. How would they make those determinations?
0: So they're not made on an individual patient basis. They're made on a system-wide basis. And, and what oh. that means is that when a new drug comes out, um, you know, an analysis is conducted. Um, there's an organization called ICER, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, that's doing these analyses on each new drug that comes to market. And a um, number of insurance companies are Working with ICER to decide what they'll cover and what they won't cover and what they'll p- place access restrictions <laughs> on, um, and that, that becomes very concerning. Um, so basically, when new drugs come to market, um, including drugs that are critical breakthrough therapies that can dramatically improve life, exp- uh, can dramatically extend life, can dramatically improve quality of life, ICER conducts this quality-adjusted life-year analysis, um, and they make the determination that, according to the QALY, which is a deeply discriminatory, flawed system, this drug is cost-effective, and that drug is not.
2: Wow.
1: Oh, that's terrible. Hey, Chris, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Do you want to comment on anything we've just discussed? Well, I, you know,
2: it's, as, as I already said, it's, it's insurance companies and it's state Medicaid um, offices that have a, a great impact on people, the drugs people with disabilities get um, because of the large number of people with disabilities who are, you know, rely on Medicaid for health care and their drug coverage. And they have formularies, and they decide annually what they're going to pay for and what they aren't going to pay for. And when times get tough, you know, they're looking to cut costs, this is one of the places that they look to. Um, And they like to have closed (coughs) formularies if they can. Um, you know the feds give them guidance. It's a joint program that's paid for by uh, the feds and the state. And so, um, you know, the feds may give them guidance, but the states are, are are always looking for ways to save money. And and one of the easy places to to look is what drugs are you paying for? What drugs are expensive? Um, especially when drugs are new and and. Um, people need them for various disabilities um you know this is this is where they like to cut and you know, as you talked about choice replacing drugs, that was a huge issue here in Massachusetts, and we you know got legislation to do a study um I was on the study group that looked at this issue and Trying to ensure that you know pharmacists and other people without without talking to a doctor can't just change your your drug, and the state can't just change it and decide that you know something that's effective for you um, can now be replaced automatically and you suffer you know adverse impact from it. Before anyone and serious adverse impact before anyone will pay attention and allow you to transfer back to the other medication that worked for you, so there's lots of issues here around drugs and and the impact on people with disabilities. Um, the quality are, are, is actually scary that's you know that that somebody is. measuring you know a certain disability. Um, without knowing an individual and deciding what, what, what the quality of life is for that person um, and putting a number on it. and then uh, uh, Regardless
1: of what the disability is, as you know, there's a spectrum. Like epilepsy mm-hmm. it could be someone like me. It could be someone with an intellectual disability. It could be me, but it could be someone that has 50 seizures a day. So to just generalize that, as uh, Ari said, is really a scary thought.
2: It yeah. really is. Yeah, it is.
1: Okay, well, how about Medicaid, Chris? How do you think all of this health care uh, legislation with insurers, uh, how do you think this could impact Medicaid?
2: Well, I mean, if, if, if we can eliminate the, you know, the qualities, as Ari was talking about, then hopefully, you know, the the feds will enforce that and the states won't be able to use that type of um, assessment as a tool to eliminate what they pay for. Um, So, you know, Medicaid, as I said, is very important in this area because of the number of people with disabilities that they provide medications for and health care overall i mean health care is a huge concern right now um again it's it's you know it's it's an expensive um, area uh, for each state and and it's where they uh, it's where they look to cut uh when when budgets get tight and so if the federal government is 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 limiting uh, health care that they're going to pay for, um, and limiting what they're going to
0: you know, reimburse
2: states for, then the states are going to cut. And so it, it's, it's, it's really very concerning.
1: Yes, I always tell people with disabilities when it comes to being educated about all these issues, if you don't take time to know, you're not going to know. And you're not going to know the impact of how that can impact you specifically. So I'm really glad we're talking about this. And everyone listening right now, you know you can get this podcast on demand through Apple or Spotify. And anyone you know that you think this is important for them to hear, make sure you tell them that. Um, Okay, Chris, one of my favorite topics and yours, I know, is employment. And you were an appointee in the Obama administration, and you worked with the White House on the executive order to see 100,000 people with disabilities hired over five years in the federal government. Was that the 20th anniversary, Chris,
2: of the, yes, the ADA? Yes, it was, the 20th anniversary of the ADA. And we're coming up on, what, the 30th?
1: I know. Isn't that amazing? So hard to believe. Um, But you, you've always been a major advocate. I'm for employment. I can so remember when you told me way back um, that, you know, you did at OPM sort of a checked into, hey, what is the employment of people with disabilities in the federal government and how shocked you were when you found out it was less than 1%. Um, which I think how shocked everyone was, because I know I just assumed, oh, largest employer, federal government, I'm sure they have a, you know, high percentage of people employed with disabilities, but, uh, that was not true. And that has been your, your mission. You've talked about it nonstop, stop. um, That's all I hear you talk about. Don't talk about it. Hire someone. You know, I've heard you say that so many times. And next year is the 30th anniversary, just as you mentioned, of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act. How is it possible that so many things have happened, you know, with transportation or video relay or housing or, you know, all of these things that, that have changed, but not employment, you know, still 70% of people with disabilities. I don't know. That's counted. a good
2: question. I, you know, it's like the unfulfilled promise of the ADA. Is that I think we all expected employment to increase significantly with the um, passage of this law. I will say one thing that I do think that it's done, and it's something that we don't capture the data, but I do think it's kept a lot of people with disabilities employed. Uh Um, I do think that. And accommodated, and it's kept them employed. So when someone now, you know, uh, especially obtains uh, a disability of some kind while they're employed, you know, it's less likely now that they're going to be fired or they won't be accommodated. So I wish we could capture that data because I do think that's one place where we've seen improvement. But the overall employment of people with disabilities, there's still this stigma in society that somehow because you have a disability, you're less able to do a job. When in fact, that's you know we know that that's not true. And so, um, and and while we may have increased the employment of people with disabilities in the federal government per the executive order, um, I, I don't know where it stands right now. Um the, I I don't know if anyone's really enforcing the executive order with the federal agencies anymore um and really making them comply that was something that uh, when the president signed the executive order it was you know something the uh they understood the federal agencies understood was was something important that you know was being measured and so they paid attention to it and they you know, really wanted to hire more people. But, you know, the fact is that it's not enough. Um, it has to happen in the private sector, too. And how we get that accomplished, I, I don't know. But it would be great if, on the 30th anniversary of the ADA, this administration did issue an executive order um, that would try and, and attempt to improve the or increase the numbers of people with disabilities employed in the public and the private sector. Um, that would be, you know, that would be great. And it would have to be enforced. It would have to be, I mean, it's not enough to just issue the executive order. You really have to make an effort to ensure that it's complied with. And there are certainly a number of agencies uh, that that could help do that. Equal, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the Office of Personnel Management, uh, just two, um, and certainly the Department of Labor. Um, but there are ways we can do this, and uh, you know we've all talked about it over the years. Uh, I just, I, I just, I just wish we could eliminate this societal stigma. But I've always said that. We're not going to eliminate the stigma until we get a critical mass of people with disabilities in the workforce and uh, everyone starts to realize that, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a disability or not. You can do the same job and you can, you know, and you have the same wants and dreams as everyone else. And, you know, it doesn't the disability doesn't matter.
1: It is amazing and sad that over the past several years, as I've come to know, you know, different uh, executives as colleagues that have told me that when they first went to a leader and said, "Hey, you know, let's consider, let's let's consider including in our diversity and inclusion, let's add disability, um, and, and hey, let's 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 move forward with this." It is shocking to me, well, I guess I'm now getting, uh, you know, used to this, but when people say, I went and told them and they said, you know, we just don't think people with disabilities could do the job. You know, before I always knew it. Now friends of mine are telling me uh, what people say. Viewing people with disabilities as, as you said, unable or inferior. Um, I mean, it's just so hard to believe that this has gone on all these years, the stigma has not changed. Mm -hmm. That, that stigma has, has not changed. Although I agree with you about people with disabilities that already have jobs would have a greater, uh, percentage of success keeping the job. I never thought about Mm -hmm. that before, but, um, I do agree with that, um, Ari, do you have any comments you would like to share about this?
0: Well, I think we need to be making serious investments in expanding supportive employment. And I think we need to make sure that the, not just the federal government, but also state governments serve as yes, the contractors yeah. and employers. Uh, that's absolutely critical. Um, you know, one of the areas that there's increasing discussion about right now is reforming the Ability One program. I think you may be familiar that right now the federal government has a contract set aside that's designed to incentivize disability employment, but unfortunately, um, the program was designed more than 60 years ago um, and only allows those contracts to go to Uh, employers that um, hire more than 70% of their workforce uh, as people with disabilities. And what that invariably means is that it usually goes to sheltered workshops um, or other segregated employers. Um, And so we don't see that aspect of contracting, um, unlike other aspects like Section 503. We don't see the ability, one, contracting set aside, um, being used to encourage integrated employment. Now, that's a real shame. Um, So we need to reform that. Uh, We need to make sure that we get um, efforts to establish state governments as a mobile employer and a mobile contractor. Mm -hmm. Um, And we need to take seriously the reality that if we want to make progress on disability employment... Uh, we have to make investments in more than just the rehab. Um we need an aggressive affirmative action agenda. Yes, yeah, I agree. agree.
1: I, I I so agree with that also. Um, and I guess, Chris, when you talk about enforcement, now I will say that Craig Lean, uh, the director of OFCCP, is conducting focused reviews. Um, but without enforcement, it just won't happen. It won't. Yeah. It won't. Well, last question, Chris and Ari. Uh, I was there with you, Ari. What keeps you up at night when you think about the future of people with disabilities?
0: I think the thing that I really worry about, you know, if I'm being very, very frank, is that we need to make sure that we are investing in the future of our movement. Um there is there are waves of disability advocacy, and that's something that I've learned. You know, looking at the last two hundred years or so, um, you know, we generally see a variety of factors: whether it's uh, polio, whether it's um, wars, whether it's any number of other things, lead to new influxes of people with disabilities and greater societal pressure to make changes in support of rights, in support of access, in support of inclusion. Um, And that's very important, and part of the reason we've seen so much progress on disability rights over the last 50 years is we saw several different waves line up, okay? We saw the post-polio generation um, come together and build the independent living movement, we saw. significant activism from uh, returning veterans. We saw significant activism from uh, people with developmental disabilities and families, um, leading to deinstitutionalization. We saw activism in the psychiatric disability community. It was really a perfect storm in the best possible sense. And so now the question really is, how do we keep that going? even in a situation where the composition of the disability community changes. So in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, we're going to see the face of disability um, look very different, and it's gonna evolve and change, and you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but it means we need to be preparing so that new generations of people with disabilities and new types of disabilities join our movement connect to that glorious past, and work to build an equally glorious present and future.
1: Well, you know what? Mm. That is so good. Chris, I wanted to ask you, but I see we're at the end of the show, but I'm having you back on, and I'm going to guess it's about employment Anyway, But right now, we mm-hmm. have to come to the uh, end of the show. You know, it went so fast, I just didn't even realize. Uh, but we end every show with a quote, and this is the quote. The only way you change the work face of America is by employing people with disabilities, said Christine Griffin. This is Joyce Bender.